I'm not supposed to be here. I was told I would die before my 28th birthday, yet I am 50 years old. I'm a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and I have an amazing life despite living with two terminal illnesses. It's time for me to share my story before I can't. So here it goes. I'm Kelly Wilson, and this is my life in pieces. Hi, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join me on another episode of my sexual abuse series. Today, I'm joined by someone I admire for her action in ending the stigma surrounding sexual abuse. She's a mother, teacher, and the founder and president of Project Roar. She's using her own personal story as a sexual abuse survivor to help educate as many people as possible about the detection and prevention of this epidemic. Through education, she is creating communities of empowered individuals of all ages who feel confident in their ability to speak up or roar about sexual abuse prevention. Welcome, Jessica. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So happy that you agreed to be on the podcast. So explain to our listeners what Project Roar is and how it all started for you. Project Roar started when I was sitting in my living room watching uh, the news about Donnie Snook Uh, who was sexually abusing uh, young children in my community and, you know, was arrested and it was in the media. And I just was sitting there thinking to myself, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? Like, they're just going to talk about it on the news and then um, tomorrow it'll be another topic and they'll forget about it. And that's not right. And I sat there and thought, okay, well, I have a story and I have a voice. So why can't I be that person that's out there? advocating for these kids instead of wishing somebody else was. So I kind of took a very giant leap, a fearful uh, (laughs) leap, and decided to reach out to the media and organize an awareness walk for sexual abuse prevention in relation to something that Theo Fleury was doing. And I started slightly, uh, you know, doing um, small talks in, in high school classrooms, which kind of led to speaking in all middle schools in my area about my story and mostly about empowerment and recognizing that if you go through something in life, you don't have to keep it a secret or struggle in silence. And after doing those presentations, people said, you really should become a registered charity. It makes it easier to do presentations and you have a more respectable reputation where people might be less likely to turn you away because believe it or not a lot of people just didn't want me around because I make people feel really uncomfortable because I talk about my story and child sexual abuse unapologetically because it's the truth and I'm tired of people silencing it or um, not focusing on just the severity of this issue by ignoring it because ignoring doesn't make it go away it just makes people feel more comfortable. So I'm all about being the opposite of that, which is why we chose Project Roar, because a roar is loud and proud and people listen and lions and lionesses are powerful. And it's just this image of, you know, releasing that silence that builds up inside so many survivors for so long that once you speak up and share your story, it almost does feel like a roar because you're letting out that pressure that's been building up from being silent for so long. 
Wow. Well, that is a big undertaking and I commend you for that. That's huge. And all the people I'm sure that you will help along the way. So obviously you have a story of your own. Do you want to just touch on that a little bit of um, why you feel so strongly about this cause? My personal story is that I was sexually abused roughly around the ages of two to three until about 11 uh, when my offender moved out of the city. And this man who sexually abused me was my mom's best friend's husband at the time. So we spent a lot of time around them. um, Being that he was married to my mom's best friend, we spent time visiting them or, um, you know, we would just be around them frequently. And despite what he has communicated, he said, we rarely spent time together, but rarely is not a word I would use to describe, um, the amount of time we were around one another at the age of five, it was discovered that I had contracted a sexually transmitted infection. And just upon rereading this morning, my medical records and the letters of correspondence between medical professionals, um, they stated that it was highly unlikely that I would have contracted this sexually because of my age. Um, And because as a child, I didn't verbally disclose that sexual abuse was happening. They felt that they had done all they could to see if sexual abuse was the cause of the sexually transmitted infection. And at five years old, my abuse had already been happening for years. So the manipulation and the control and the threats and fear had already been embedded in my mind. So it was not possible for me to communicate what was happening because I truly thought that he was going to harm me or send me away or that my family wouldn't want to see me again because they would be ashamed of me. Um, So I had to get treatments for that. And then a year later, it came back and then just miraculously stopped. Um, After those that age my offender kind of ramped up the severity of the abuse to eventually kind of taking all of my innocence before i even understood what it was and the biggest lesson i've learned from my story is that what i was lacking was not a loving parent it wasn't lacking loving people in my family who i was really close with it was just a lack of education on my body and of what was right and what was not right to do to my body. Uh, So that is what my main focus is on now is just educating adults about why teaching children about their bodies, their rights, safe and unsafe touch is so powerful because without that knowledge, children are left listening and being educated by the people who are telling them it's safe, it's okay, it's normal, this is a secret, it's fun. And when you're hearing that as a child and your body is telling you that you don't like it, it's very conflicting. So making it as black and white as possible with children is extremely important because if they know that's my private parts, you're not allowed to do that, I'm going to talk about it to someone I trust, then it takes the power away from those people who have been holding voices of survivors hostage for so long. It wasn't until I grew up and learned that it was wrong And that I learned about what sexual abuse was that I thought, oh, that's what happened to me because my offender wasn't going to sit there and say, oh, by the way, what I'm doing is very dangerous and illegal. Um, He made me think that it was normal and that it was this type of 
learning experience that I was going to, you know, learn how to take care of and please a man. And it sickens me to this day to know what he said to, to keep me quiet, but it makes me understand more as an adult why I am the way that I am now. And I could have very easily gone down a dark path of the anger and the self-loathing and the guilt and the suicidal thoughts. And I was on that route to continue that path in my life. But I decided that um, after having a conversation with my now husband who said, when you wake up angry and don't love who you are, he wins. So how long are you going to let him win? That kind of flipped a switch for me. And I thought, you're right, I can't let him win. So changing my mindset uh, really helped me focus on becoming a better person for me and that I didn't need to forgive him to to find the healing um, power within myself. Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, I also, as you know, experienced something very similar starting at just after 11. So it's almost the continuation and the manipulation is it's, it's just what happens to children people that have not been in that situation find it so hard to understand. And um, I'm so glad that you started this, this charity. And so do you um, have any statistics in Canada? Cause I know my offender went to prison in um, 1986. So it was a long time ago and he actually was sentenced to seven years for, uh, sexually abusing young, a young girl. So at that time I was told through victim witness and stuff that it was one in three girls. This is what they said to me back then. And, and I'm very aware as everyone is that it's just not girls. It's, it's all children and people uh, that this can happen to, but are you, um, knowledgeable about what the stats in Canada are, because I know this has become a huge epidemic and it is, it's just swept under the rug. There's a lot we don't know. There's people that are being abused every day and have to live in silence. So do you know kind of the statistics more in Canada now? In Canada, the most recent statistics that have been readily available, the one in three girls has not changed. It's still the same. And for boys, it's one in five. And those stats I kind of take as like a, they're severe enough as it is, but knowing that sexual abuse is so underreported scares me even more to know that those stats are probably not even close to being as accurate as this issue is. And especially for the one in five boys, there's so much stigma associated with being a male victim of sexual violence or sexual abuse or assault that they're even less likely to report because if it's a female offender, oftentimes boys are made fun of or thought like this is, this is supposed to be normal or okay. Um, You know, reading comments from men when it's a female teacher who was sexually abusing a student, they say, this was my fantasy. I can't believe that this guy doesn't know how lucky he is. So the stigma around being a a victim of sexual abuse is really a huge barrier in allowing us to have accurate statistics on just how many children are being sexually abused. So I assume that it's much worse than what 
we know right now. Yeah. And that, that is so unfortunate. It's, it just changes your life forever. And for those who can, you know, find the strength to move past that, but we lose so many people because of this and it's just heartbreaking. So you're a mom now and how, um, has that affected how you feel about your past trauma? Like now that you're responsible for this little person? In the beginning, uh, when I found out that our firstborn was going to be a girl, I was both excited and terrified. I was worried, you know, that the same things that happened to me would happen to her because I know the stats. And I really just sat down with my husband one night and said, I am terrified. And here's what I think that I need to do as a mother to feel okay. So we had a really important conversation about using proper terms for private parts, enforcing consent with with affection, um, you know, letting people, letting family members who are close to us and who would see our daughter frequently, letting them know what our family rules are and that they need to stay that way. And luckily, everyone respects those and respects her boundaries and teaching her about her body and her rights and seeing how empowered she is at two and a half really reinforced to us that it is possible to teach children from a very young age that that's their body. She knows what parts of her body are private. She knows what they're called. Um, She, even when she plays with her stuffies or dolls, she'll say, I'm not giving a hug to my stuffy. That's her body. So she understands that we can't cross people's boundaries. She might not know that they're boundaries, but she knows that we need to respect people And when it comes to their bodies, if they're not comfortable with something, we don't do that. And through regular conversations with her about her body um, and using proper terms, so for bathing or, you know, potty training, the words that used to make my husband and I uncomfortable because they're not words we typically used in conversation, it's now as common as saying nose or ear or leg. And it takes away the stigma associated with those parts of our bodies. And we're really just trying to instill in her the understanding that we talk about our bodies. We don't keep secrets. She doesn't even know what a secret is. We only have surprises in this house. And I've just, I find it fascinating that so many people say that you can't teach children about this topic until they're ready to handle it. Because if my abuse started when I was two or three, so my daughter is at that age now, which is bringing up a lot of stuff um, on its own, you really can. They, there's no right time or wrong time. You just, you do it. And right. there's, so, it's so not you too also early talk to start. Right. Pardon? Sorry for interrupting you. Oh, that's okay. Uh, uh, sorry for interrupting you. Uh, do you also teach parents this? Because this is so empowering. Like, to not only talk to children about their bodies, but talk to parents on how to talk to their children, you know? And uh, I know myself when my children were little, I have two sons and what from the time, like I would bat them from the time they were old enough. And I know it was because of my past, I would put the soap on the face cloth and give it to them and teach them, you know, in my, my family, some of them would say like, you're their mother. It's not a big deal. And I said, but how do you know, it doesn't feel 
yucky to them and, you know, to right. teach them at a young age and, and maybe they didn't get as clean as they would have if I had done it. And I know that that there's nothing wrong with that. That was just my hang up. So from a very young age, they learned, you know, about their own private parts. And we talked about everything just like you did normally. But a lot of parents don't have the history or the trauma. So they don't talk to their their children like that. So do you also talk to them as opposed to just children? Absolutely. Uh, we usually talk to parents more so than children because they're the ones who know their children best. They're the message senders to their children. So I talk to them about the fears of using proper terms, you know, the shame that's been instilled in us for generations that, you know, we need to use silly terms like wiener and cookie and muffin and all these other weird food associated words because we shouldn't say the real word. But I always say, if you say nose and chin, why can't you say penis, vulva, vagina? What is what is the difference? Because so many children have tried to disclose and didn't have the proper terms and their cases were dismissed simply because they didn't know that it was a penis. And it's, it's frustrating to know that those children are doing everything they can. And I use that as an example to parents to say, yes, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's not because it's wrong. It's because it's foreign to us, um, which much like it felt foreign to my husband and I. But now, like I said, it's common terminology and it's just conversation and there's no shame. There's no gasping. There's no nobody is traumatized by by these words. And I think by being a mom and, and seeing the success in our daughter has enabled me to speak to parents more confidently about how empowering it can be to give children that vocabulary to be able to say, so-and-so touched my vulva or so-and-so touched my penis because there's no second guessing what that means. But if someone says, right. uncle whoever touched my cookie, well, what are you talking about? Go get another cookie from the package. What do you mean? Um, so we try to plant those seeds in parents through presentations, constantly posting on our Facebook page about secrets, proper terms for body parts, sharing children's books and resources and videos so that parents can really find the information um, easily to have those uncomfortable conversations with their kids. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's experienced something similar to you and is struggling to find their own voice? Because... It is so hard for these children or for even an adult that has experienced this to come forward. My best advice would be to listen to your heart because everyone knows as survivors, we want to heal and we want to speak up and we want to feel better. It's just taking that step. And it's hard because you think about the manipulation, the control, the fact that our voices have been suppressed for so long that even if the abuse happened when you were five and now you're 25, when you think about those moments, you're automatically put back into that five-year-old stage where you feel the same fears. And it's it takes a lot of work and a lot of courage to finally take a deep breath and say, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to someone about this. And it doesn't necessarily mean start a charity or share it with the world. It could be writing it in a journal first and then talking to a friend and talking to a counselor or a therapist um, and to have no expectations, I guess, about how people will react to it. 
because sometimes the people who you think would love and surround you with support and understanding are too uncomfortable to give you what you're looking for as far as, you know, love and healing. And that kind of comes within because you can't look for the gratification from other people. It has to come from within. So you have to, like you said on your blog, love yourself because you're worth it. And loving ourselves is tough because we grow up feeling, you know, separate from our physical bodies, maybe disgusted with our bodies, ashamed or, you know, guilt because of how our bodies reacted with the abuse. So it takes a lot of rewiring in our brain to get to that point. But when you do get to that point, it's such a breath of fresh air to just feel the pressure, leave your body when you say it out loud and you take control of your voice. Because like my husband told me when I was waking up every day, angry and bitter and hating myself, my offender was still winning, even though the abuse had ended years before. And it was time for me to to be the winner, to get my power back. And that's what it's really all about is just knowing you're worth it. Yes, absolutely. My offender did go to prison. And um, I'm not sure if yours did, you can, you can um, tell me that in a sec if you'd like. But what I do find, and I don't know if you found this, is that over the years, it seems like there's been less and less punishment that I feel that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And I'm not sure if that's, this is just totally my opinion and what I've seen over the years. I don't know if society as a whole have made it almost okay or not okay, maybe isn't the word, but you know, we have given these people a slap on the wrist, like bad, bad, don't do that again, where before seven years in prison can be a deterrent. Uh, six months house arrest is not a deterrent. So have you found that in your situation or in your experience with other people? Absolutely. Uh, my personal experience with my offender, he was never formally charged uh, never went to uh, court or anything like that, denied it. Um, you know, reading through the documents from the investigator, he was very difficult to contact. He would just randomly show up at the police station without, you know, in, an appointment to speak with the investigator. Um, you know, his mother said he has a bad heart, so take it easy on him kind of thing. And when I met with a Crown prosecutor to discuss my experience. Um, I don't think he read my file ahead of time because he sat me down and said, tell me everything. Um, so I did, and I was hyperventilating and he threw a tissue box at me and said, you need to figure this out. Um, you can't possibly remember anything from when you're two to three years old. Cause my kids don't remember anything from that age. So something isn't right here. And I felt like I was the one who was in the spotlight for doing something wrong for saying that when I was two or three, this is the situation that happened and then felt like I was the one who committed a crime. And it was, I left feeling like, okay, well, if this is how the experience is going to be, why am I living? Why am I fighting? Why am I here? What's the point? This person whose job it is to listen to me and protect me. They did not do that at all. They made it all about themselves. And he determined that there was not enough in my case to even charge him with anything. So the case was, was dropped. Um, but for me, 
the justice came when I found out that his family knew that I had um, discussed what he did and that there was no shock or surprise on their end. So I thought, okay, uh, at least they are aware. And he passed away um, over a year ago. So I don't get to have legal justice, but my justice kind of comes from speaking out. And he died knowing, number one, that I reported. And there's no doubt in my mind that he didn't come across my Facebook page and watch the things that I was doing or try and listen to what I was discussing. Um, he had threatened us with lawsuits and lawyers, which never happened, um, accused me of being a liar, things like that, which is understandable. He was doing what he thought he needed to do to try and protect himself. Um, but I'm very confident now that even though my justice isn't legal, my justice is in my advocacy. And one of the biggest frustrations as an advocate is hearing about the lack of punishment. Oh, someone sexually abused uh, a child, but it's their first offense. They don't have any other charges or crimes against them in their history. Well, so what? It just means they weren't um, discovered or nobody spoke out before. Um, the slap on the wrist metaphor is exactly what it is. It's as if people think that they're children so they can grow up and just get over it, which is absolutely ridiculous because sexual abuse sticks with someone for the rest of their life. It is not something you just wake up and get over and say, oh, I was seven. Now I'm 30. I can move on with my life. It's not like that. It changes how our body reacts to situations. It changes the makeup of our brain, how, how we handle stress or don't handle stress. The, the effects of sexual abuse are lifelong and the legal punishments, I don't call it a justice system because that's not what it is. It's a legal system. The, it's not set up to protect the victims at all. And, you know, hearing about predators that are in safe houses, but are in the middle of neighborhoods where there's tons of children, what's the point of that? Or headlines that say high risk to reoffend sexual abuser out in the open. And there's no way for us to find out who all these people are. There's no database. So I don't know if I'm living surrounded by predators. I have no idea. And I think it's so disheartening for survivors and makes people less likely to speak up when they think, if I'm going to go through all of that hell just to watch my offender get three months of probation, it's not worth it for me, which shouldn't be how it is. Survivors should feel motivated. That man got 10 years in prison for sexually abusing someone. I want that to happen. I want that to be my reality. But what you see in the media as results of, you know, trials is like, what's the point? Why would survivors speak up if they're going to be the ones who are interrogated and try to be put, have this image of them being a liar or trying to get something from speaking up and that it's the victims who ruin the offenders lives and not vice versa, which is really just disgusting at this point. Yeah. And I, I did go through that process and, and, you know, you have to talk about your most intimate things. And as a 16 year old girl giving my statement, I talk about that. Like it, it's just, I didn't want anybody in the courtroom. I mean, it was just, I, I, you do, you feel like you're on trial and you feel that it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's embarrassing. It's, it's all of the negative feelings you could possibly imagine wrapped up into one little ball. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, I'm glad that you feel, you know, that 
you got your not justice because you didn't use that word, but at least you did come forward and, and he did know. And inside the privacy of his own self, he knows what he did. And, and um, if he passed away, well, I don't know. I'm going to call that a little bit of karma. <laughs> I don't know if that's okay to do that or not. <laughs> yeah. I know that I wish that on anyone. I do not. And I'm going to be very clear on that. I just... Yes. You know, I understand where you're coming from. So what is new and exciting or anything um, coming up for Project Roar at this time? Right now, we kind of took a little bit of a hiatus with everything going on with uh, COVID-19. But we've been talking behind the scenes now, um, meaning the board of directors and myself about how we want to move forward now that it's safe to uh, have meetings and get together. And the board that we have is full of passionate, motivated individuals who are survivors or no survivors, or who just believe in helping protect children. And there's so many things that we want to do. And right, right now, our biggest focus seems to be getting resources out into the community, educating parents. And we're, we've been trying to fight for a long time to have a body safety program piloted in a school um, to teach children about their bodies and their rights in age-appropriate, safe ways. And, you know, these programs are developed by educators, social workers, law enforcement. So these programs aren't built to traumatize as much as people try to, you know, think it is. Um, and the fight has been really difficult because people aren't returning emails or are closing doors in our faces saying enough is being done already. And as an educator myself, I can see that more needs to be done and what's the harm in teaching children more about their bodies and their rights than not taking that initiative to try and do something differently. Um, so that's kind of our biggest thing is just trying to get our local school district to give us the approval to try this out and say, Hey, let's pilot it. Let's track how many disclosures we get. Let's see how many kids become empowered. That's what we really want to do. Um, and we, the sky's the limit, really. We're full of great ideas. And, you know, we want to plan a big fundraiser when that is, you know, able to happen. And really just focus on resources and education and making sure that there's free resources out there so that money is not a deterrent for someone who wants to help protect their children. Right. So, on that fundraising note, I am going to give a donation to Project Roar. And so for me and those who want to give to that cause, which I'm hoping is going to be a pile of people, uh, what's the easiest way for us to do that? First, thank you for your donation. That's so awesome. I really appreciate it. And it helps us give those resources to families and educators. And it helps us, you know, change the stigma. So we really appreciate that. Uh, the best way to find us would be on our Facebook page. So facebook.com slash the project roar, or they can also email the project roar at gmail.com. And our website is findyourroar.ca. Okay, perfect. So final question, Jessica, what affirmation motto or phrase do you think best represents you and your life? 
I think that that is such a, a wonderful question and a difficult one to answer because I feel like I, I have so many different roles, teacher, wife, mother, advocate, survivor, and there's different mantras for all of those roles. But if there's anything that can kind of encompass who I am as a whole, um, I like to use the term roarier. So it's a play on words with warrior, but also with roaring. So a roarier based on our definition through Project Roar is someone who is loud and proud and speaks the truth and isn't afraid to advocate for themselves and for others. And I think that's who I am in all of those roles. I'm advocating for my students. I'm advocating for my daughter, for myself, for everyone who is a survivor like me. Um, so we always address, you know, our Facebook post, hey, Roariers, because you don't have to be a survivor to be one. You just need to be someone who wants to do the right thing and speak up and, and end that stigma and shame that has controlled how society has handled or not handled sexual abuse for so long. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on my podcast from the bottom of my heart. You have been great. You're an inspiration and keep up the good work. And hopefully people can check out the Facebook page and the website and help in any way they can. And thank you again. Thank you. It was wonderful speaking with you. Have a great day. You too.